0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you here. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. And Kyle, I couldn't have asked for a perfect set of songs to have matched up with the message for today. So that's, that's awesome. I, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for your participation in First Coast Churches. Uh, your staff uh, leads, helps, and you give generously to our organization. So that allows us to serve over 200 churches. Um, in our city, and and as we, um, I do want to say something for Kyle I, wherever he went. Ladies, I'm sure he didn't mean when he said, and we we got Mother's Day over. I think I'm pretty sure he didn't mean that. Okay, I, I think what he meant is he's so glad that Mother's Day was an opportunity to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, that's what you meant, right? Now, okay, so there you go. Okay, so. Uh, Let's just move on. Let's just, nothing to see here. Just keep going. Here we go. Uh, Let me pray and we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for today. You're a good, good God. We just sang, uh, not just songs, we sang our testimony to you just a few minutes ago. So thank you for that, Father. Thank you that there is a fountain filled with blood. Thank you that that blood has saved us. God, let us never move very far from the, the reality that our situation is desperate, but your love is generous. We love you. We thank you. God, help us to take away from here what you would have each of us to leave with. And Father, I include myself in that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you may know this. Timothy Keller is a famous pastor uh, who passed away this week after a two-and-a-half-year battle or so with, um, with pancreatic cancer. Uh, He's influenced many of us, and um, there's a quote from him that actually is the sermon in a sentence from my talk today, or my message today, is this, is, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. So that's kind of the big idea in a sentence today that we're going to pull from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to spend most of my time on verse 10, but we're going to set up verse 10, by looking at the, the first nine verses. Uh, and I want to give you a little bit of a historical context. Most scholars believe that Jesus died in A.D. 33. And, so, um, and most scholars also believe that the book of Ephesians is kind of in the middle of Paul's ministry. It's, the, it's a prison epistle. And so he's in prison when he writes it, but it, it's written about A.D. 60. So somewhere around 27 to 29 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the letter to the Ephesians has been written. Now, why is that important? Because sometimes when we go back to the Bible, we think that's just a long, I mean, it's just a long time ago. How many of you can remember the day the Jaguars were voted in as the football team of, Duval, of Jacksonville? Raise your hand if you remember that. That was 1995. So about the time from that day to now is about the time, the space that Paul had from the resurrection of Jesus until now. So it's not a long time. I'm saying that to say this. Paul had planted churches all over Asia, and he's actually writing to a church that he's, already, that he's planted. He's, he's telling them again about salvation. He spends the first three chapters of, of, the, um, of the book talking about the beliefs that Christians should, should have. And he, he uses chapters four, four through six to talk about the behaviors of, of Christians. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at some beliefs that Jesus says that or that Paul says that that followers of Jesus have. And so as we chunk this up, the title I've given my message is this: God's Amazing Grace Continues. God's Amazing Grace continues. And so the first point of my message is from the first three verses of Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. And here's the text, and then I'll tell you what the point is. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the point I want us to see from these three verses. God's grace is amazing because our situation is so desperate. God's grace is amazing because our situation was so desperate. What you see in these first three verses, in verse one, it says that we are dead in our sin. Literally, what it means is we are unable to initiate our redemption. In verse two, it says we are enslaved by our sin. That means we're trapped. We can't not sin. And then in verse three, it says that we are condemned in our sin. So what it, what it actually says to us is without Jesus, we are under the wrath of God. Now, I think it's super important for us to remember Paul's not just in a bad mood. Paul's not like clearing his chest here. What Paul is doing is Paul is remembering. Paul is this is personal confession. Paul is remembering how far he was from God, how desperately lost he was, and he's reflecting on his own lostness, the our inability to find truth and find God, and he's also saying this th- what i had you also have remember paul didn't start off as a bible scholar he didn't start off as a theologian he started off as a christian ter- as a terrorist against christians like he would have fit in with al qaeda <laughs> i mean he was he it was he was not a nice man he went around and looked for people that were gathering like we're gathering and he arrested them and separated them and and even had some executed he was holding the coat of those who stoned uh, Stephen. So, so what's important here is not to get aggravated with Paul saying, aren't you just being negative? No, Paul is confessing. I read a story this week that happened last June, June uh, in June 2022. And it was at the World Championship of Swimming, of Synchronized Swimming, in Budapest. Anita Alvarez, after she had performed her routine with the Synchronized Swimmers, she sank to the bottom of the pool. But nobody noticed. And looking across the deck, uh, n- uh, nobody had noticed she was way under the water too long, except her coach, Andrea Fuentes. And she immediately dove into the water, fully clothed, uh, pulling Anita to safety. Anita was unconscious, and she did not have the capacity to kick or paddle herself in any way. An- Anita, uh, Andrea would have, if Andrea wouldn't have noticed, Anita would have drowned. Now get this, Anita is a professional swimmer, but because she passed out, she had no ability on her own to save herself unless somebody dove in to get her. Listen to me, that's a parable about these three verses. It is saying that we have sunk in our sin to the bottom of the pool, and we have no ability to save ourselves. Unless somebody jumps in the pool to save us. And that's what the next three verses are about. So our situation is desperate, but in, the, in verses four through seven, it says this, but God. If you believe in writing your Bible, you need to underline that, circle that, highlight that, but God. If this was a movie, the music would change. The music would have been really sad or suspenseful music in the first three verses, but all of a sudden, this would be better music because the hero's coming, okay? But God, being rich in mercy, let's stop here for one second. Remember what mercy is? Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And so, but God, being rich in what? Not holding our sins against us because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, even when we were at the bottom of the pool. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he has raised us up with him, and he has seated with us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. So our situation is desperate, but here's the second point I want you to see. God's grace is disruptively generous toward us. God's grace is disruptively generous toward us. So that phrase, but God. We were sunk, but God. And so what does disruptive mean? How many of you have ever heard of this phrase called disruptive technology? Disruptive technology is when something is invented that changes everything that follows it. So for instance, in 4,000 BC, the wheel was invented. Before the wheel, you had to drag heavy stuff or get stuff on a boat and take it somewhere. So, I mean, like there was a time when the wheel didn't exist. We take it for granted, but the wheel didn't exist. And when the wheel was invented, then guess what? Carts and cars and automobiles and planes and and um, hand trucks and things that you carry heavy stuff with. It's it changed the game. That's disruptive technology. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb. Now there had been gas light bulbs or gas bulbs before that, but this was the first time that a, a dependable electric light could run for hours. Well, you know what it changed? It changed, the, it changed how we communicate. It changed how we live. It, it, I mean, we're here today and we're in this great environment partly because there's electric light bulbs. In 1992, the smartphone was invented. You didn't probably buy that version. But in 2007, you probably bought the smartphone that Apple produced and it changed the game. It was disruptive technology. As a matter of fact, let me tell you what happens to me sometimes. I'm preaching, and people fact check me on their smartphone while I'm preaching, and they tell me afterwards, hey, I thought you were messing with me, but I really found what you said. So it's disruptive technology. You, I mean, do we really need a computer by our side all the time? Well, we've convinced ourselves we do. Like if we leave the house now without a cell phone, we feel like we've left without an arm. That's what disruptive technology is. It changes the trajectory of life. Here's what I want you to see. God's grace is disruptively generous toward us. It changes the direction of our life. And gang, I'm not just, yeah, it's a difference between hell and heaven. Yeah, but it's so much more than that. And that's what we're going to see in verse 10. God has a trajectory for your life that's actually the exact way that he, he wants you to live and has empowered you to live if you'll trust him. And then verses 8 and 9 are kind of the Baptist motto, if you will, I think. Uh, it reads like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So our situation is desperate. God's grace is disruptively generous. And this point is this. Salvation is God's, grace, is, is God's grace-filled gift to us. Salvation is God's grace-filled gift to us. This verse actually tells you how the transformation takes place. It says, it says by God's grace, he, he gives us something that we don't deserve. How? When we trust him, when we, when we believe, our, it's, we, we are saved through our faith in the goodness and generosity of God. And here's what he says, no matter if you're rich or smart or beautiful or athletic or whatever, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no bragging. Now, I have to tell you, um, I'm not crazy about participation trophies. Like, I'm pretty competitive. So I have six grandkids, and, and I know they're going to be in leagues where there's participation trophies, and that's going to be fine, but it's going to bug me. There's one place where it's okay to have a participation trophy, and that's in our salvation. You don't bring anything of value. The only thing you and I bring to, the, to salvation is our need for it. H.B. Charles, a pastor in our city, says it this way, our only contribution to our salvation is the sin that causes us to need salvation. And so, in this verse, Paul talks about this process. But here's something that I've noticed in Baptist life. We tend to make Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 the finish line. I mean, the goal is to make sure you don't go to hell. Is it? Now hear me. Yes. But there's so much more than that. You see, eternal life starts when you start following Jesus. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. We are invited into God's life when we surrender to him and by faith believe and we begin to walk in the ways that he has prepared for us, verse 10 tells us. But I wanna tell you how tough this can be. If we settle for a Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 finish line, not only do we leave out verse 10, but it's confusing to our, to people. Let me give you an example. Dave Rhodes owns a company. He's a friend of mine. He owns a, a company in Atlanta and Dave, uh, there's about 20 people in his company. And one of the guys on his team said to him, I'm going to run a marathon. And there's an Atlanta is in Atlanta. It was a marathon. Well, I don't know what it was called, but he anyway, was a marathon. And so he's not built for a This guy not built for a marathon according to Dave. But he trains, and the team decides to help him train for the marathon. So it's a year later. They're at the day of the marathon. He's prepared. He's ready. Dave says to his friend that they've trained with, we will be at the finish line. Look for us, and we'll cheer you in. So the friend says yes. The gun sounds. The race is on. Dave and his team try to go to the finish line. But there's a bunch of people already at the finish line. And so they actually, the closest they could get to the finish line was a mile from the finish line. So they're there, I mean, they're there and they see their friend coming and they start waving. Yeah, come on, go, whatever. He thinks that's the finish line. So he runs to them and he collapses as he gets to them and they say, no, no, this is not the finish line, get up. And the friend says, the last mile of the marathon was harder than all the other miles combined because he thought he was done. Listen, friends. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a glorious beginning to our salvation. But the the following of Jesus in obedience is the completion of that salvation. That's what it says in verse 10. Look what it says in verse 10. In verse 10 of of Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have you ever read the Bible and you find a verse that you would swear is, was put there? Like you've read that and you've never seen it before. Like Ephesians 2.10 was like that for me. It was like I'd read up to verse 9 and I know I'd read verse 10, but it had never sunk into my heart. But here's what I want us to see from verse 10. The, the point, if you want to make a The point I'm trying to make here is: followers of Jesus are God's workmanship. The word "workmanship" is an interesting Greek word. It's the word that means well. It says it's "poema." Do you hear the word "poem" in that? "Poema." That's it's the Greek word "poema." What does that mean? It means um, artwork. So it can mean a poem. It can mean architecture. It can mean a sculpture. Uh, it can mean a picture that's been painted. It's, it, it's a word describing what an artist does. Like what a master, like what, what Michelangelo, like Michelangelo had workmanships that were paintings. The scripture says here that those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are followers of Jesus, are not only created in the image of God, but now we're another level. We are his masterpiece. So I know Monday's coming and most of us don't wake up on Mondays feeling like you're a masterpiece. But I'm telling you that's what the infallible word of God says. It says that we are his workmanship. We are his That There's a great illustration of of something a historical event that happened. There was a a woman who had inherited a, a a very emotionally valuable handkerchief from her grandmother. Like it was an heirloom handkerchief that was several, I mean, it was decades old. Somehow, she got a little careless and an ink blot got on that handkerchief. And she was devastated. She happened to be friends with somebody named John Ruskin. If you don't know who John Ruskin is, and I didn't either, uh, John was an art critic. He's an artist, an art critic in the 1800s. And John said, give me the handkerchief and I'll, uh, let me see what I can do. So he takes the handkerchief and, and he goes and he paints a piece of art on the handkerchief using the stain as the beginning point of the artwork. He mails it back to her more valuable than when she handed it to him you see it? You see, we give God stained lives. (laughs) We give God who we are in faith. He's the master artist. The stains that Satan wants you to believe are permanently debilitating in your life. God redeems those. And he, he paints a portrait with your life. And so the question becomes, do we believe that when we hand God our stained lives, that he actually hands us back something more valuable? See, most of us, not you guys, but other churches, think, that, think that, that, that the church, that God wants something from you. He wants your money. He wants your attendance. Listen, God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. He dove into the pool to get you, to bring you up where you couldn't do it for yourself. What in the world can you give him? What he wants is something for you. He wants you to know what abundant living in Christ is. And so, as we continued, there's a couple of points I want to pull out of verse 10, then we will be done. God wants something for you, not something from you. I would go so far as to say that Kernan Church, want something for you, not something from you. If you've been a Christian very long, and if you've been in a programmatic, if you've seen church programs for a while, and you see the VBS announcement, it's very easy to get sucked into that and think, well, they want something from me again. They want me to actually go do something I really don't want to do on a weeknight when I could be doing something else or a weekday when I could be doing something else do you know your church doesn't schedule VBS because they think you have nothing to do you know what the invitation really is the invitation is for you to dive into the pool of water that this community is sinking in and to grab kids And to help kids get to the surface, to help them find truth. And I got to tell you, it's a trick of Satan to make you think that the church wants something from you. Because that will steal your joy. But when you and I understand that everything that is an opportunity in front of us is God giving, wanting something for you. Wanting to expand your heart. Wanting you to have hands and feet like his. It's an amazing gift. And so the first little sub-point under point number four is we are his unique um, workmanship. It's an interesting thing, that, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but the Scripture talks about that the stars in the earth are God's handiwork, right? It's almost like God's playing around. He doesn't have to stress a lot. You know. He's, it's his handiwork. But then... Um, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 it talks about how we're created in the image of God so all people like saved people and lost people all people are created in the image of God it's called the Imago Dei it's like we are created in God we have the ability to connect with our creator we were talking about our golden retriever earlier with, uh, with Kyle's wife and we have a golden retriever and as wonderful as she is she can't communicate with God I mean she's not created in the image of God But then there's another layer, another level, and that's this layer of God's workmanship. It's it's this thing that we who are followers of Jesus get to experience that nobody else does. And then another piece I want us to see in verse 10 is this. His empowering, this idea of us being his masterpiece is he is empowering us to help other people know and follow him. Listen to what it says. I'm going to break it up. But We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So why are we created in Christ Jesus? Why are we his workmanship? Not so that we can be museum pieces. We're not artwork for the museum. We are artwork for the mission field. We are artwork to do good works. So what does that mean? I think the best explanation can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Let me read this to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Stop, what right here? He's not dead anymore. She's not enslaved anymore. She's not under God's wrath anymore. She's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself now listen carefully and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not recounting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ so we are created in Christ Jesus to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ what does that mean practically? Thank you for asking. That is such an amazing question. Uh, it means this: an ambassador is simply a repre- uh, an ambassador is a representative from a powerful place. Like so, we have ambassadors to other countries from America, so they they represent American interests abroad. We live in the kingdom of God as we are kingdom people. So, being an ambassador means we represent the kingdom where we where we go. We have six grandkids, all of them under five for one more week. Yeah, it's a party at our house. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's amazing, but it's exhausting. And, but here's, here's the thing. How am I an ambassador to my grandkids? Well, one thing is when we were in the hospital room, and the first time I got to hold them, I silently prayed for their salvation. Actually, even before they were born, we were praying for their salvation. But the first time I got to hold them, the first thing that I intentionally did was to anchor my their face and my face and talk, I mean, talk to God about this little amazing thing that I'm holding. You see, parents, I know I know parenting can be frustrating. But you're really ambassadoring. You're really helping shape the character of kids to know what it means to love and follow Jesus. Dads and moms, do you realize you're discipling each other? Do you realize that that, that really you're ambassadoring each other? Do you realize that if you drive into Glen Kernan or Jack's Golf or, or whatever place normal place you live, you're actually driving in that neighborhood as an ambassador? You're not better. You're just a representative. You're a representative of a kingdom that, that is somehow yet now and not yet now. And so that changes everything. It doesn't mean you have an agenda for everybody's life. What it means is you're on a mission. It means that those difficult parenting moments may be a little bit more purposeful if you understand You're shaping the character of somebody to be able to love and respond to God later in their life. One of the reasons it's so important for us to be ambassadors is because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, there's a phrase that says that Satan is an accuser of the brethren. Do you know what that word accuser, it means categorizer. Do you realize that Satan likes to tempt you and then categorize you by your sins? We need ambassadors to tell people that whatever the label is that your parents have given you, that people have given you, or that you feel in your spirit that somebody else has given you, that there's a new name for you. There's a new identity in Christ. You don't have to live by the labels that somebody else has placed on you. There's so much freedom. There's so much freedom in that. And then finally, our discipleship path is intentionally prepared for us. Uh, The scripture says that in verse 10, it it talks about the fact that that we are are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what I want us to see. Um, The world would like to tell us that there's not a, a God, there's not somebody who has a plan for our lives, that, that it's purpose, that, that we're random uh, cells that came out of ooze <laughs> or we were monkeys or whatever. Here's what I want you to see is that God has prepared a path for you. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? If you've been to VBS, you've at least two times you've seen it's, it's a big VBS story. Remember, he's the guy that has the coat of many colors. And his dad, he was his dad's favorite. And he has a dream. And that dream uh, turns out to be true later on. But he doesn't quite know how to handle it with his brothers, So he, his brothers get mad at him, right? So what do they do? They try to kill him. They throw him in a pit. If it wouldn't have been for Reuben, he would have been murdered. But there was a caravan of slave traders that came. So they took him out of the pit and gave him to the slave traders. And they went home to forget about Joseph. Joseph gets bought by Potiphar, right? Serves Potiphar well, but evidently Joseph was a hunk. And he gets falsely accused of sexual sin. So where does he land? He lands in jail. What happens there? He interprets a couple of dreams. Does he get out immediately? No. He gets out a little bit later. What happens? Pharaoh has a dream. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And what happens? Joseph becomes like the vice president of Egypt. And Egypt survives because of his wisdom. And the people of God survive because of his wisdom. Then do you remember what happens? It gets interesting. Joseph's brothers need food, so they come back. And he messes with them a little bit with some of the grain and hiding some stuff. But ultimately, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, something happens. They know that he knows what happened, and he knows that they know. So it's this brother-to-brother confrontation. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, this is what is said. In verse 20, it says, And as for you, what you intended against me for evil, God intended for good, in order for the accomplishment of a day like this to preserve the lives of many people. Joseph didn't choose the path, but he followed the path that was laid out for him. And as difficult as it was, God had a purpose in it. How did he know? Because when you, you find purpose in life, when you, not when you're looking ahead, but when you look back and see what God has done, right? And you see the, the blessing that he has, he has given you. And so here's what I want us to see. There's one more verse after verse 20, and it's 21. It says this. This is Joseph speaking. Now listen to this. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Like, are you kidding me? You were going to kill me. You threw me into a pit. You sold me into slavery. You put me in a position where I get falsely accused. I end up spending lots of time in jail. I never got to grow up with my father. Are you? You see, listen to me. We don't get to choose the path that God has us on. But when we follow the path that God has us on, our hearts are changed. You see, I used to think verse 20 was the key verse. I think the fact of his heart transformation in verse 21, I think that's the big deal. So here's here's my question um, to you today. What is God inviting you to walk in? In verse, uh, the final part of verse 10 is this, that which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So think about how Jesus invited the first four disciples to follow him. They was by the ocean, right? They were fishing. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the scripture says they immediately dropped their nets and they followed him. Do you know why they immediately did it? I think it's because they knew if they would have waited a little bit, they could have talked themselves out of it. Isn't that true? When God asks us to do something, we have the boldness and the energy to do it right then. But if we wait a week, it's like all of a sudden, eh, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. Can I say to you, what Jesus is inviting us into to follow this path he's prepared for us is exactly what he did with the disciples. He simply said, follow me. And what Jesus is saying to us in verse 10 is, is to walk in the path It's to follow him. It's to read the word of God. It's to follow him. And so here's my question to you today. Do you need to remind yourself that heaven, just getting into heaven is not the finish line? That there's actually a whole race to run after salvation. Is that what you need to remind yourself of? Maybe it's been a while that you've reflected on the fact that you were really dead at the bottom of the pool and, and you've for, kind of forgotten that Jesus jumped in and pulled you to the top. Maybe it's been a while but that you realize how dirty the handkerchief really was that you gave to God. And maybe it's time for you and me to get excited about what he's giving back to us because he really doesn't want anything for, from us. He wants something for us. So I'm gonna pray, and I would just encourage you when the worship team comes and they're singing just kind of wrestle with those ideas. What is it God is asking for you in this next five or six minutes? And can I just ask you, like the disciples followed immediately, whatever he tells you, would you drop your nets and follow him immediately? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to bring this word. I, Father, I, I trust it not because it's my word, but because it's, it's the scripture. And so, Father, thank you for the the possibility that you jumped into the pool to save us, the pool of humanity. God, I thank you that you disrupted my life. You changed the trajectory of my life for eternity, but also for now. Father, I pray that each one of us would wake up understanding our role as ambassadors and not to be creepy Christians, God, but simply to be winsome followers of Jesus And God, help us to pray for and serve and love people who are far from you. Can you just help us, Father, to not let the labels that Satan puts on people that we know not to be the labels we use for those people. Father, I thank you for all that you do 365 days a year through this congregation. But in this next six minutes, Whatever you want to do, would you help us to create space for your spirit to do what he wants to do? In Jesus' name, amen.